Galatians 2, uh, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For though through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thank you, Bronwyn. So aggressive, isn't it? Uh, when, when Peter came to Antioch, I posed him face to face because he stood condemned. Um, so dramatic. What took place, and we'll explore that in a few moments' time. But what's interesting is that half these passages is about the clarity of thought or thinking that goes behind behind the behaviour that's been required of of Peter and the other Jews and of Barnabas as well, because they've clearly had a momentary lapse of reason, and we'll explore that in a few moments' time. But today is really about um, aligned thinking and living. And so in many ways, today is about realignment. And I hope that we might consider in what ways we need to be realigned as we listen closely to this exploration of these remarkable uh, 11 verses. Shall I pray? Let me pray. Father, we pray that tonight our hearts and our actions may be truly aligned with the truth of the gospel for the sake of others. And we do this only in the power of Christ's Holy Spirit, alive and present with us now. Amen. So my text today is one verse in the book of Galatians, the last word that was read to us a moment ago. It's Galatians 2 verse 21. Paul writes, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, through Torah, we'll come to that, if it could be gained that way, then Christ died for nothing. Now, why is this our verse for tonight? And the answer is because for each of us, this is personal. 
do you want to have been found to have set aside the grace of God? I don't. To have put the grace of God to one side as if it were meaningless to reject the grace of God, to despise the grace of God, because that's a semantic range of meaning behind the verb to set aside the grace of God. What's being said here is that God has showed his immeasurable grace towards me in Christ. Do I want to reject it, to set it aside? Also, I want to never have said that Christ died for nothing, for no reason. I want to say he went through all of that for a reason. And so it begs the question for us, how can righteousness be gained? Because if it's, gained, if it's not gained through the law, if it is gained through the law, then Christ died for no reason. In the Old Testament, which the Jewish believers in the Galatian church were soaked in, guided by, in those scriptures, the righteous were those who were on side with God as opposed to the, the wicked. They were approved by him and therefore part of the people who were right with him, right by him, they were the beloved. They were Jewish and not Gentile dogs. And so righteousness is gained by Torah keeping the law. And I know this because I lived in New York City for three years and I lived right opposite the East River to Brooklyn. You can see Torah keeping through the Jewish people there today. The Gentiles were the sinners in the Old Testament, without God, without hope, without Torah. They were the idol worshippers, dogs. People you don't eat with, not because you're racist, but because they would defile you. Because God says, do not be defiled. You want to blur the boundaries of the people of God. It's about distinction, you know that. But when the gospel swept through the South Galatian towns on Paul's first missionary journey, that thick line in the centre there, South Galatia, you can read about that in Acts 13 and 14, when the gospel of grace swept through, everything was upturned. Gentiles responded to the grace of God. They received the spirit of God just as the Jewish people had, that is by faith, and an ancient divide was broken down. That's all good news. But old habits are hard to break. And you've really got to stand in the shoes of a Jewish Torah keeper and walk with them for a mile to truly understand the profound difficulty and challenge of being aligned to the gospel as Paul wasn't for his, his, his moment. To illustrate, my wife and I have only flown business class once in a flight from the US to Australia but we didn't earn it, it was a case of mistaken identity. They thought, the airline thought, that Laura was the daughter of an NBC news anchor that favoured their airline. Please come in, please come in, please come in. Uh, the daughter was apparently married to an Australian man with a one-year-old child, which tells you, by the way, the last time we travelled business class, that child is about to, to turn 18. Business class is an interesting thing to ponder, to turn left as we did that day, rather than right. It's so stark. It, of course, means you've paid for it. That's how it works. Nobody complains because you've earned it. They, they get it. Everyone gets it. But it's such a stark divide. Some turn left, some turn right. 
you know, some eat junk, others choose their steak rare. Classic knives, stainless steel. Upright, sleeping, reclined, sleeping. And I think it's fascinating that the divide has a, a curtain, an actual curtain, usually a grey curtain, which is so drab. A little bit like, now stay with me, a little bit like the temple with its outer court for the Gentiles. An economy class, if I can put it this way, for those not the people of God. They could come but not be uh, fully engaged. Now stay with me here. I want to show you what the grace of God is like. Grace is when everyone on the plane, everyone in the kingdom of God, everyone in Christ, gets treated like they're in business class. Whether they deserve it or not, because nobody does. In fact, in God's world, uh, you don't buy it, you don't earn it. There is no economy class. There is, in fact, no business. There's only first class in the kingdom of God. And so if you are in Christ, there's only grace. Everyone is there by a gift. You simply receive it. Jesus says that. And so there can only be, by logic, let alone theology, there can only be first class in the church of God. No one's earned their place here. No one can be born into it. We say it during the baptism service that we receive that which by nature we cannot have. You can't have it by being born. And that means that there's no pride if it's by grace alone. Uh, Paul will write in Romans, where, where is boasting? It is excluded. Now today, tonight, we're going to learn how this can be easily forgotten, like Israel coming up out of their redemption in Egypt and forgetting what happened minutes ago. Peter forgot what happened minutes ago. I mean, all of this takes place in Acts 10. Peter gets the vision. 11, he stands up against the pressure group. 12, 13, 14, the gospel goes through South Galatia. And Acts is written right after that, before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So this is like a genuine momentary lapse of reason of Peter. We'll come to that in a moment. But for us, you can still live like there's a divide, even if you believe there isn't one. You can still speak as though you're better than others. You can act as though there are people in economy class, even if you know the truth. And in fact, you'll have your reasons for your behavior. I imagine Peter had his reasons in Galatians chapter 2 for withdrawing from the Gentiles, treating them as though they're second class. There's pressure from head office to obey the Bible. <laughs> Does no one think that's funny? <laughs> I mean, they, the head office is saying you should obey the Bible. <laughs> the Jewish scriptures, and there's pressure there. There's also there's a lot of hard things going on, a lot of complex things going on. But there's also, as we discovered a couple of weeks ago, probably pressure from the Romans because Gentile people becoming believers and therefore could claim the exemption of Jewish people to go in for the cult worship. So there's lots of volatile things going on in South Galatia. You'll have your reasons for it, but it's a momentary lapse of reason. So Paul will say, when I saw him not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I confronted him, he stood condemned. So it turns out, you and I can be unaligned meaning you can be clear on the truth, really believe it, really believe it, and yet betray the truth by your actions. That's awful. And Paul will call it a, hypocr a hypocrisy. 
mask wearing. And so the circumstance here is pretty clear. It's in verse 14. Paul writes, I saw, I noticed they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So there I said to Cephas, to Cephas, to Peter, in front of all of them, you are a Jew, we know that, yet you live like a Gentile. That's good because you've been liberated and not like a Jew. You got liberated by, in Acts 10. How is it then so quickly that you're forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, the very thing you gave up? Because God told you to give it up. Why are you treating non-Jews as second class with this forcing, this compulsion when you know the truth? So, two points today, and I'll explore it with three questions in a conclusion. Clear thinking, aligned living. Clear thinking, verses 15 to 21. I'm going to go to the second half of our text today. And then I want to talk about aligned living, which is the circumstance that gave rise to the clear thinking. Because Peter will see, has clear thinking, like is the the, the um, implication of the text is Paul is saying in 15 to 21, you and I both think this. We both agree with this. So Peter has this momentary lapse of reason. It is unaligned, and his behaviour, Paul says, white-handing the gospel. And it's not hard to see why. So firstly, clear thinking. Paul writes in verse 15 that we all know something. We think something is true. We who are Jews by birth and not, quote-unquote, Gentile sinners, we know with clarity that a person is not justified by the works of the law, Torah, but by faith in Jesus Christ, or in the original language, the faith of Jesus Christ. We'll come to that. But either way, we're clear about this. We Jews by birth, you and me, Peter. We're not Gentile sinners, and yet even we know. I, I, there's a, possibly a meaning here is that Jew, all Jews by birth should know that a person is not justified by Torah, because that was never where the Torah was heading. But maybe it's just we who are believers in Jesus by birth, we know from Jesus, We've been liberated and we know the truth. That Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness, and all that happened, our hero, all of that happened before he was circumcised, before the Torah was given, before kosher was a thing. He believed God. And we all know this is true. So we clear that those who are justified, that is those who are approved by God, are those who trust God, who receive his spirit with or without Torah-keeping, they're the ones who are vindicated, Jew or Gentile, because anyone who was once a sinner, now saved by grace, is now fully part of those whom God loves, his beloved, his community of faith. And all this has been wrought through the blood of Christ. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. So it's not like airlines. You can see, by the way, how the grace of God can be so attractive. You can also see how it might be repulsive or insulting. Because if you said, I'm a pretty good person and everybody thinks that and God should think that, you can see how your love by grace could be insulting. But to anybody who's humble enough or sort of open enough about their own heart and behaviour, the grace of God is profoundly attractive. This gift doesn't come because you're Jew or observant. It certainly doesn't come because you are self-justified or an all-round good person. We know it comes through faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in going to the cross. And so a Gentile like me, dog right here, can be right with God, clean, like Cornelius, cleansed, treated as first class because of someone else, and therefore a Jewish person who wouldn't normally eat with me can sit with me. 
and we're justified not because God confused me with someone else, like my business class mistake, you know, NBC news anchor daughter going through, not really, but you get it. They gotta be careful by the way, because there is a talk about the Christian gospel which says that God sort of blinds himself to the reality of Bell and goes, you know, Bell's walking by, but all I see is Jesus. You know, I, I don't know whether I want to think that way. I think Bell is fully and utterly right with God, not just because God sees something else, but because of Jesus, she is right with God, fully. Amen? Amen, Amen sister. Okay. So it's a particular kind of love that drives this. He is full of grace. And so we're given a gift if we have faith. And here's the implication. You are all children of God through faith. And that, by the way, is not a United Nations. We're all children of God, rainbows and lollipops and sunshine. This is if you're in Christ, if you're on the plane, if you belong to Christ, all of you, children of God, which means, not, this is in chapter 3, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. That's profound. There is neither male nor female, not as a distinction, neither right nor left. You are all one in Christ Jesus, no second class. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, like Jewish people, and heirs according to the promise. This is profound for Gentiles like me. And this, by the way, is not just theological mumbo-jumbo, dancing angels on the head of a pin, boring people who like theological debates, debate about such things, and they use words like justification by grace alone, because we're Protestants and we know what's wrong with the Catholics, faith alone, Christ alone. This is not a theological debate about simply getting into heaven when you die. This has real ground implications for who you eat with. It's life to the human soul, craving to be right with God. It's oxygen to the people of God, because if you treat somebody as second class in the people of God, then you are starving the beloved of oxygen. This is indeed sunlight and water on the missionary movement of God for how else would the gospel get to Africa, Asia? Amen? It's clear thinking. So, in verses 17 to 18, he answers an imaginary objection. You might say, if in seeking to be justified, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners because we're eating with them, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Our meeting with the sinners is Christ promoting sin. Are we in some way defiling the kingdom of God, which is the, probably the accusation? And Paul says, absolutely not, verse 18. If I rebuild what I destroyed, and Paul says, Christ destroyed this drab grey curtain, and I then went around preaching the gospel that you could trust God and not be in the Jewish Torah, so I'm, I, just, I destroyed it. It's astounding that he did, that he got it. But if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I, really, I would really be the lawbreaker. Uh, that's a strange little verse there, but I would be the transgressor. The word lawbreaker in the Greek means to jump ship, transgress. And he's basically saying, if I put Torah back into the justification equation, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I'm the one that's jumped ship. I'm the transgressor. If I rebuild what I destroyed, if I, if I ask the Gentiles to leave the room, I'm the transgressor. And the mirror reading will be that the pressure group are saying Paul is a, 
increasing transgression by including the Gentiles. And Paul says, if I don't, I'd be the transgressor. And then he gets very personal in verse 19. I, I can hear him inviting Peter and you and me to the same personal reflection. Can't just be in your head. Got to be in your heart. Verse 19. For through the law, the Torah, I died. I died. Ladies, in a moment he's going to say, I'm crucified with Christ. In other words, everything's changed. You don't, you don't get to say, I'm dead, without saying that something fundamental has changed. Because the alternative is, I was alive yesterday, and I'm alive today, I'm alive tomorrow, and I've made some changes in my life. But I'm dead to, to the law, crucified with Christ, so that I might live for God. The life of Jesus has changed everything for me. Nothing is the same now that I know Christ. And then you get this beautiful, pumping, life-giving, life-blood personal comment in Galatians 2.20, and this should be a, basically a verse that we claim for ourselves. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. When he went to the cross, I went with him. And so I no longer live, I'm dead. But I am alive, Christ lives in me, I'm animated by him. The life I live in the body, one that goes to work, has to do with flatmates, Neighbor, neighborhoods, that life, with all its complexity, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So personal, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. By the way, if you know right now that those final one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words, if you know right now that those eight words are something you couldn't say for yourself, the one who loved me and gave himself for me, then I'd like to pray with you. And so would others here today at the back of the church. Tom Wright translates this passage with a little bit more. Well, I have been crucified with the Messiah. I am, however, alive, but it isn't me any longer. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life I do still live in the flesh, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the space in which I live. That is, it's not even really about my faith in him as though it could be measured. Jesus says, faith is small as a mustard seed. In the end, it's about his faithfulness to his Father in going to the cross. And I live in that space. Therefore, I do not set aside the grace of God. Verse 21, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is clear thinking. But it also needs to have with it aligned living. Because I think this is the interesting bit, that the clear thinking is embedded into a real story, in a real moment in history, with real life implications for the Jewish Christians who were led astray, for even Barnabas who thought, well, I'd better get on in the act, but even worse still, the victims. Gentile believers who are asking the question, am I really included? Is Christ really sufficient? Peter and his Cephas or Kephas. By the way, nobody knows how to say Kephas because 
We don't have a recording of ancient Greek. If we had a recording, we'd know. So if you say Cephas or Kephas, give yourself a tick. Peter came to Antioch, verse 11. He believed the truth when he arrived. He knew it from Acts 10, defended it in Acts 11. He really did. It was a heavily non-Jewish area, but he could see that God's work in Jesus had taken away the drab grey curtain between Jew and Gentile, that God was accepting people and giving them his spirit without the kosher laws. They could eat their pork, they could leave their boys uncircumcised, they could keep a different Sabbath, but they trusted Jesus. There was no second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And Peter knew this moments before in Acts chapter 10 because it was given a vision three times because it has to get into your, what is it, thick skull? Is that rude? You know, we've got leather hearts sometimes, and so it takes a little while to God to get through, and God gives Peter a breathtaking, life-changing vision of sheep and unclean animals to Jewish people being let down in the sheep, one, two, three, each time do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And it's all in reference to Cornelius, who's, Peter would think is unclean, but in the end, Peter invites the man into his house to be his guest, to eat with Gentiles. And in fact, in chapter 11, we have a record of Peter with this clear thinking, defending it, because he's part of the resistance movement. In Acts chapter 2, verse 11, verse 2, 11, verse 2, Peter goes up to Jerusalem, where the pressure people are, and the circumcised believers criticized him, which is no fun. And he said, they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Why'd you do that? Acts 11 verse 4, starting from the beginning, in other words, with a non-anxious presence, he told the story, the whole story. He knew the truth, but when he got to Antioch, Galatians 2 verse 12, he began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentiles. He sent them right, as though they were second-class citizens. He wouldn't eat with them. He sent them to another room, the back of the church, to the kids' table. And Paul writes, you know, even though that's, you know, there's an understandable reason for a Jewish person to do that, you know, after decades of acting in one way, it's not unusual. It's not like Jews didn't have kosher lords for thousands of years. Paul writes, in the end, it white-hands the gospel, it robs the gospel of power, it empties the cross of Christ of its power. Paul says, in the end, it's a different gospel, anathema. By the way, this isn't just an enlightened call to inclusion, as though Paul, as though Paul was saying, what you had before was racist, and I'm here to challenge racism. Although it is a challenge to racism, and the Racism, one of the implications of this is that racism gets dismantled. There's no, there's no second-class citizen in the kingdom of God if somebody comes in with a race that for whatever reason I find hard, if that happened, this text would challenge that racism. Absolutely. And yet this isn't just a sort of enlightened call for inclusion. In fact, Paul is going to say in chapter 5, who are the people that are excluded in the kingdom of God? He still believes in right and wrong. It's just that in Christ, the old boundaries are no longer fit for purpose. And so he needs a line living. What I find interesting is that this aligned living is so banal, you know, meaning ordinary. It's as ordinary as who you choose to eat with. You can see 
Peter going, look, it doesn't matter too much. I mean, we'll eat separately and then we'll do something else later together. You know, I imagine him saying that. Eugene Peterson wrote this, most people, most of the time, are not in crisis. If pastoral work is to represent the gospel and develop a life of faith in the actual circumstances of life, it must learn to be at home in what novelist William Golding has termed the ordinary universe, having a meal. That is, the everyday things in people's lives, getting the kids to school, what do you have for dinner, dealing with the daily droning complaints of work associates, do you like that? Watching the nightly news, making small talk at a coffee break. It was in the everyday of life that Peter created a second class in the church of God. His life was unaligned with the truth that he knew. And by the way, this gospel and aligning with it is something we all attempted to do. All tempted to do. All simple to do. Not with such devastating con, con well maybe. So three points to conclude. Firstly, why did Peter withdraw? And the answer is because of fear. Verse 12, before certain men came from, ja from James, these men may or may not have had James's backing, but they, had, they used his name. Before they came, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, something happened. It's a little pressure group, a little bullying, a little religious bullying. And then he began to, to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. And Paul tells us why. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Fear makes us do silly things when we feel pressure from others. I'll talk more about pressure and fear in the weeks to come. But just to notice here in this moment that there is a level of pressure. And no doubt with some good arguments, and maybe Peter, who's pretty passionate, didn't feel like he had the logic to fight back. And maybe they had the reasons. You know, you're not reading the Bible properly, you're, not, you're desecrating, desecrating our traditions, you're destroying our good thing, you're trashing God. And maybe you're a people pleaser, you know, you're making it easier for the Gentiles and yet you're putting us in harm's way with the Romans and the volatile situation in South Galatia. Don't do that. It's like you can see Peter going, okay. <laughs> By the way, it's not the first time that Peter buckled the pressure. Like Peter's one of these extraordinary people that you can do a whole case study on. At every point he jumps in, he's the first to say it, He's a leader, but he thinks with his heart before his head. When somebody comes in with some head argument, you know, something he can see, he buckles, but he rallies. For Peter, it's a genuine momentary lapse of, of reason rather than uh, a goat in the tank, a, a thing that's genuinely problematic about his life. What are the consequences? And the answer is there are real-world consequences uh, namely that people are affected. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, this mask wearing, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. Three layers of influence. He probably thought, you know what, I'll just sit over here, but the other Jews go, well, I'll join you over there. And Barnabas says, well, I can see the reasons. And he joins in, he was led astray, even though we have on record 
that he had clear thinking in this matter. What does it mean? Your actions carry weight. An unaligned life can destroy people who are trying to live aligned lives. And of course, the victims of the situation of the Gentile new believers in Jesus Christ who were belittled and judged by this action. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, self-justification and judging others go together, just as justification by grace and serving others go together. There's something about the self-justification moment here which leads to the separation from the Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. You have set aside the grace of God. And there might be ways in which we can live unaligned lives when we treat people poorly in social media or anywhere. When you ignore people because you think they're weird, so you withdraw from them, you look down on others for voting differently to you. I do not set aside the grace of God. Lastly, what, what do we do about it? The answer is you've got to spot it, by the way. It's not easy to spot it, but you know, you've got to pray for wisdom uh, to know when something is unaligned in your own life. Here, of course, something is unaligned in the life of another. That itself is interesting. Paul spotted it in Peter's life. But I think you want to spot it, note it, repent of it, and stand up and join the resistance movement. Not necessarily to be like Paul to Peter when Kephas came to Antioch, I posed him face to face. I said to Kephas in front of them all, it had to be public because Peter's withdrawing from the Gentiles was public. And so the rebuke had to be where the sin was committed. The whole Galatian church needed to eavesdrop on this conversation. The Jews who were led astray, Barnabas who led astray, and the Gentiles themselves who were treated as second class had to hear this conversation. But more importantly, you want to model grace in the ordinary moments of life. You want to show people that this is personal. The one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not just religious. It's a personal encounter with God that's changed everything. You're not just adopting a few values and moderating your life. You want to make verse 20 your own. I've been crucified with the Messiah. I am, however, alive. But it isn't me any longer. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life I do still live in the flesh, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not set aside the grace of God. Show what forgiveness looks like in the workplace. Show what grace looks like in the home, what wisdom looks like in complex decisions, what hope looks like in suffering, and what trusting God looks like in the storm. And if you do that, it'll adorn the gospel and not white-hand it. Let me pray. Father, we, we love the gift of grace. Jesus, my Redeemer. And we hold on to this hope. And yet we say, how strange and divine, I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but Christ in me. So Father, I pray that we'd work out what the implications are of this aligned life, this life of power, of demonstrating the grace of God in the ordinary situations of life. Help us to be able to say, along with the Apostle Paul, 
that we live by faith in the Son of God. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.